Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Let's begin this baptism of Jesus celebration, not with Jesus, because we have to understand some things prior, and I'd like to start it with the story of Noah. Noah, maybe along with David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den, are the quintessential stories that we tell children. It always makes me kind of laugh when we do so, because the story of Noah is heavy and it is deep, and there are some ways in which one might even say it is violent. It certainly doesn't paint a good picture of the world, does it? God, come, God has seen the world go from the Garden of Eden to this to this sort of wasteland, this desolation of sin, this hopelessly broken world. And God seeks to start again. God says maybe the harshest and heaviest words in the entirety of Scripture. It says that God had regretted that he had made all this. That breaks my heart every time I read it. But God, and God says, I seek to start this again. And so you know the story, Noah, Noah is sent away to build a boat. God says, I'm going to send a flood. And the scriptures tells that up to this point, it had never rained. So he's like, God's like, go, Noah, I want you to go build a boat. And I imagine Noah going, what's a boat? And he says, well, it kind of looks like this. And he's like, all right, whatever. And so Noah and his family are off doing this. And the rest of the world just laughs at him because they don't know what a boat is either. And nobody can believe that there is a flood headed their way. And so it, of course, rains. And, and Noah and two of every animal are on the ark, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and then 150 days locked in this sort of this floating prison. It sounds one, oh, 150 days, just me and the animals. Trust me when I tell you that is no vacation. And Noah's trying to get off. 40 days after that, Noah sends out a raven, this black bird. See if anything's up. And the raven comes straight back. Nothing doing. Then he sends out a dove. Curious why he would have switched animals. But nevertheless, he sends out the dove. And the first time it comes back, it hasn't found anything. But the second time he sends it out, it comes back with a freshly plucked. This is the word. Freshly plucked olive branch. The dove is a sign. The flood is over. The punishment is complete. And to everybody's hope, including God's, that new life has begun. And so they make preparations for get off the, to get off the boat. And it says that they get off and they make, they make an altar and they worship God. And God says a peculiar thing, right? God says, here's my rainbow in the sky. You know this. I make a covenant. What God is saying, I am never going to do this again. I am never doing this again. It's the one time where we might almost say, God didn't get it right. Can I say that? God actually in his own, God says, this is not who I am. You can imagine God stepping back and thinking, wait a minute, I'm the creator of life, not the angel of death. Wait a second, this is not who I am, and I'm never doing this again. And he makes a covenant, the very first one in scripture. A covenant is not, an, it's not a contract, it's not an exchange of goods and services. A covenant is exchange of people. God says, I will give myself to you. I will never do this again. And God binds himself never again. We want this story of Noah to be the story of a new world. 
God makes creation. Creation goes sideways. God, like a chalkboard, our kids don't know what that is, wipes, wipes all of it away, starts again, and that's it. It just took a second time. We want to take the Bible and make it a pamphlet. Ten chapters, everything's good to go, off we go. Except in the story of Noah, everyone fails. Everyone. God's action doesn't work. It doesn't reset the world. Noah goes off the rails. I invite you to read this story for yourself, but it tells us that Noah gets off the boat, he plants a vineyard, he makes wine, and he gets drunk. And before we're like, Noah, what a terrible person, the older I get, the more that sounds like a trauma response to me. We can wipe away, we can wipe off the earth, but you can't wipe the human heart. And his family expands and grows as it's supposed to. But the first meaningful action that the family of Noah takes is the building of the Tower of Babel. And and their question in building this tower is, how do we get to God without God? Adam and Eve were just hiding from God. Noah's family completely rejects him. And we're left with the question, is new life possible God has a purpose for everything, yes, but none of those purposes in Noah was fulfilled. It's a story of complete and total failure. And for us, in the midst of our own floods, in the midst of our unknowing, looking out and seeing nothing but chaos, the waters, always a symbol of chaos in the scriptures, where is there safe land for my life? And what do I, how do I live there when I get there? If God is resetting the world, or even just my own world, how am I supposed to be in that world? Noah was prepared to save the world. He wasn't prepared to live in it. It hadn't occurred to him what he was supposed to do when he got off the boat. And this story of Noah gnaws at me. It bothers me. Because God's supposed to be setting everything right, and God doesn't. And I felt that in my life. God, you're supposed to be making me new. Why this? But as you know, the people of God are resilient. God promises a new way, and God creates a new path forward. I'm not going to touch on that necessarily today, but you can go read the story of Abraham. Let's put it that way. And the people keep trying. But flood after flood comes, and it's not the floods of waters, it's the flood of empires. It's Egypt, and then it's Persia, and then it's Babylon, and then it's Greek, Greece, and then it's Rome. Flood after flood after flood keeps wiping the people of Israel clean, but they're still trying to sort out an answer in the midst of this flood. The prophets keep saying, prepare the way, prepare the way. A new thing is coming, a new thing is coming, just hang on. And then one day, the apostle Mark tells us, that John appears kind of out of nowhere. Luke will tell us where he comes from, but Mark does not. Mark tells us that this guy, John, is down at the river preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. One man, away from the city, away from the people, preaching God's judgment and using water to wash away sins. Sound familiar? And the people are going out to him, they're seeking to be made right. They want to be made right, made right with God. And water has always been the way that that has happened. But John knows that it's just a sign. John has stepped into his, this ancient story of God washing the world clean, but he knows that it's not destruction that will actually set it clean. 
says there's a different reality coming. He says, one is coming after me who will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And then it tells us, in the fullness of time, love that line, in the fullness of time, when it was right, at exactly the right moment, it says that Jesus shows up. Other stories will have more detail, but we can ask some questions about this. Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, has already said, this is the son of... Mark has already told us, he said, this is the, that he will be, this one who is to come will be the son of God. And so our question is, wait a second, if this is the son of God, why is he coming to a baptism to have his sins forgiven? What sin does he have? Well, maybe this whole thing, friends, at the beginning, at, here at the beginning, was never about sin. Jesus goes into the water and he comes up and the heavens split open. But instead of the heavens splitting open and rain comes down, it's light. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, how interesting, the form of a dove comes down. And this dove lands on Jesus. The message is the same. The flood is over. You're free to come out. New life is beginning. Here... In Christ is the land on which you can stand. And here in Christ is offered the fresh branch, the fresh olive branch of peace and new life. And God says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This salvation is not in destruction. This salvation is in love. And this salvation comes not from God's God's tools of destruction, but it comes from God's very own family, his own son. God has changed his strategy. It's no longer, I'm sorry I made all this. God's words are, I love you. In baptism, we participate in this story of Noah, but in a completely different way. In baptism, we receive this identity of Jesus. We we start to understand the identity of the God to whom Jesus points. Jesus points to a God who is Father, not Judge. Jesus points us to our own human reality that we are children of God and not rebels. And new life is not in a new strategy or a new way or a self-help. No, new life is found in a person. And in this way, Christ becomes the ark by which we all are saved. And Jesus is no Noah kicking people off. Only this guy and his family. Only if you meet these criteria. But Jesus goes out and is tempted His resolve is hardened, and then the first thing he does, he goes to the synagogue, he proclaims that the kingdom of God is now here, and he invites others to follow him. Jesus is about filling the ark, not with animals, but with you and with me. Baptism is about a new identity, and that identity is shared by every single person who claims Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I would even suggest that those who still have a question about Jesus, nevertheless, their deepest and truest identity is pronounced by God the Father who says, you are my beloved child, with you I am well pleased. There are just some who haven't figured that out yet. There are some who still think God is at war with them. There are still some who think God is going to rip open the heavens and not send a dove, but send the storms. 
But our proclamation is that Jesus sends the dove with the freshly plucked olive branch. He says, I come to bring peace. And I will turn your spears into, <clears throat> into pruning hooks and your swords into plowshares. Just come and follow me. The identity of Christ is now the identity of all. And all are invited to get on the boat. Like, what does this have to do? Now, my, my consistory members who are coming on, this, coming on today are going to say to me, what does, what does Noah have to do with my job? You are not called to be the destructors. But everything about leadership, everything about our place in the church flows from this baptismal identity. You are the beloved, and you must lead as the beloved. And the people you lead are the beloved, and they deserve and must be treated as such. Either the boat floats and we all make it, or the boat sinks and we don't. It's quite that simple. And we can never forget the identity of ourselves and others. Leadership in the church, then, is just managing the boat. We are given responsibility for the proclamation of this ark, which is not a church, but is Christ. And we are not called to sort of save our own skin. That is Noah's way. Christ's way is to bring others in. It's the only way Christ ever was. The only people he ever got angry at were the people who wanted to kick people off the boat. The way of Noah is exclusivity. The way of Christ is everybody on board. Leadership, then, in this vein, in this way, according to our bylaws and according to the traditions, some traditions of the United Church of Christ, we have a word for this kind of leadership, and we call it ordination. We say that when you become a deacon or elder, you are, you are ordained to this office, and I want to suggest today that it is not just that you step into office, but that you step into a lifestyle, a vocation, a way of being in the world. Here's what the United Church of Christ says about ordination. I've cut and pasted a couple of things. Ordination is a lifetime commitment to God and Jesus Christ and to the church, relying on the Holy Spirit. There's our dove. Having particular responsibilities for the proclamation and practice of the Christ faith and for the life of the church itself. Called to embody the love of God for the world and to proclaim the good news on behalf of the church personally and publicly pointing the church to its dependence on Jesus Christ, the source of its faith, mission, and unity. What does all that mean? <clears throat> Out of your beloved identity in Christ, you are marked for a lifetime with Christ's love, and you are now marked with a mission for a lifetime to go and help others find their identity in Christ. That is your job. You are responsible for this boat. It is the greatest call to my, in my opinion, it is the greatest call to which anybody can ever be called. And it is also the greatest burden. Because it demands your life. It demands who you are. And our contribution to the world is weighed not by did people like it, but what did they discover about God? And as somebody who has been through ordination, 
somebody who has felt those hands laid upon you. I wanted to share a little bit of my own ordination story. For those of you who don't know, one of the proudest things in my life, beside the three people sitting here and the one sitting in a pig pen right now, that's why my phone is here, by the way, for those of you who are wondering, why is he looking at his phone? I'm waiting for pigs. Besides them, one of the biggest points of pride in my life is that for you who don't know, I was ordained in a Catholic church, but not as a Catholic. The church had burned down. All right, we had no place to go, and they said, where do you want to be ordained? And I said, well, I'm going to be ordained where my people are. That's where a pastor ought to be is where their people are. That's at the fire hall. And everybody said, yeah, we're not doing that. I was like, you sure? They're like, yeah, we're sure. They're like, go find somewhere else. So, I talk, so a buddy of mine calls me up. He's the priest of Manchester, and he goes, I called the archbishop. I'm like, you did what? <laughs> Who calls the archbishop? He said, I called the archbishop. The archbishop has given permission for you to be ordained in our sanctuary, if you would like that. I said, can I do communion? And he said, absolutely. I still can't believe that happened. So I remember walking into St. Bartholomew's Catholic Church, just overwhelmed by the, by the setting as it was. This was going to be a big moment in my life. I was getting ordained. And I remember all the people that were there. And I remember that moment where these people came and stood over me and, ma- and made me sign my life away. They said, you know what you're getting yourself into. And I was 20-something at the time. Like, yeah, absolutely. We good. We good. We got this. Let's serve Jesus. I was ready to go. Here I was, a dreamer, ready to give my life away and to serve others, to lead others to Christ. And so the moment comes and they lay hands on me and I felt that weight and it is far heavier than the weight of human hands, I'm here to tell you. I cannot explain it. I do not understand it to this day. I can feel it pressing down on me and it was like somebody had, it was like straight out of a weight room, like somebody had put a 300 pound bar on my back. I felt every bit of it and I was ready for it. Let's go. And I felt that weight and when I stood up, they told me, you're ordained. It's like, okay, now what? And as everybody's coming out the church, you know how this goes. Everybody tells me, you'll never be the same. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it sort of feels the same. (laughs) It sort of feels the same. I'm kind of good. But I'm here to tell you that in ordination, my life did change. Two years later, I had to leave that call. wasn't easy. Six months after that, I'm in a part-time call while trying to convince some people in another denomination that I had something positive to offer to the world. I was like, hey, I have these ideas. Can I share them? And they're like, well, maybe. And then all that just kind of fell away. I felt this call, and then it was gone. Six months later after that, oh, excuse me. I already did the six months later. Three years after that, y'all call. I'm like, this is great. I'm looking forward to this, a place I could call home. Six weeks after that, COVID. And I'm very glad that you are laughing about that. I laugh about this too. But I need you also to hear me that in in the entirety of my life of ordination, my own identity as an ordained minister in in the church of Jesus Christ has been pushed to the absolute brink so many times. Really? I have to be let go. People don't acknowledge my gifts. The church shuts down when I'm excited about a new call. It has been nothing but struggle after struggle after struggle. This is ordination. And at times I said, I think I want off this boat. Let somebody else drive this thing. I'm just hoping to hold on to the rudder and hope I get there. But things happen when you're ordained. I wanted to share one that happened this week. I won't share who. Suffice to say that I sat down with somebody and they said to me, said to me, you know, my family still talks about this funeral 
you did. I was like, oh, well, that's, that's very nice. Funerals, people remember pastors from funerals. They don't remember much, but they remember who did it. And she said, my grandmother has dementia. So she said, she didn't remember that it was her son had died, but she did remember that you brought God's love where she needed it. I don't tell you that to make myself the hero of the story. I tell you that to understand that this is what happens when, we're, when in ordination, when you contribute something to somebody else's life. That's what ordination is. It is the greatest burden in the world and the opportunity to change lives forever. Not because you're special, but because Christ is in the midst of it all. Ordination pushes you to the brink because it becomes your life. Not because we have a lot of meetings, but because it's just part of who we are. You are now a deacon or an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. And people look to the church to be told their identity. They come here because we forget sometimes, who am I? And when they come, they must find people who are ready to tell them exactly who they are. You are the beloved child of God, and they, we have to help them to see it, and, and they need to see someone so that they can experience it for themselves. Which means to be, to do well in our roles. To lead well, we must worship well. We must be people of worship. To lead well, we must pray well. We must be people of intercession. To lead well, we must be immersed in the story of Christ, which means we must be immersed in the scripture. Not to have it memorized forward and backward, but to love it and to learn it and to share it. To lead well, we must be intentionally growing as disciples. Ordination doesn't mean we've gotten there. Ordination means you've got so much more to learn. To lead well, we must cultivate compassion. To lead well, we must cultivate vision. To lead well, we must be prepared to sacrifice. And to lead well, we must be ready to be misunderstood. Why? Because that's Christ. Christ is the ark on which we've embarked. And Christ is the thing to which we have lashed ourselves to and can never get off. But this is what Paul reminded the Colossians when he, when he told his leadership in Colossians. He says, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We cannot proclaim a life we aren't willing to live. But when we are ordained, we walk as faithfully as we can, step by step, we are up close to the very salvation of the world. So church, reminded of our identity in baptism, we'll call and bless the consistory for their work, their new identity, or at least those who are now willing to come up after we've talked about all this. But we give them a new identity. This is why in our liturgy we examine candidates and hear them make their commitments to a life of identity-shaping faith. It's important. But we will also pledge ourselves to their leadership. You understand this is the other side of the coin, right? That's just as critical. We affirm our intention to live in covenant, to give ourselves to them as they give themselves to us. We promise to love you, which is real, tangible affection. We promise to honor your leadership because it's hard and we trust you. We promise to assist you because as far as I can tell, each of the members of the consistory still only have two hands. And the work of God requires many, many more. And the goal, we say it right in here, to be a faithful church of Jesus Christ. To be a faithful church that is bringing new life to the world, not through destruction, but through invitation. To work together to pile this boat high with two of every kind and to weather the storms and to land on the dry ground of Christ and his cross. Why? Because having nothing to do with us, for whatever reason God sees fit to say that, for whatever reason, we are yet, in all of our failings and all of our glory, we are yet the beloved 
children of Jesus Christ.